Last week, we started this series called The Optimism Factor. And our question is, how full is your glass? You all know that old cliche, the glass is either half empty or it's, or, or if it's half full. And it all depends on the perspective that you have in life. Because the truth of the matter is you can have the same amount of water in two glasses and one person can look at one and say, wow, that glass is only, is only half full and you know, who took the other half of my water? And you have another person walk up to the other glass, which is the same level, you know, and those, those people say, wow, look, a refreshing glass of, of water. No difference between the two glasses, but all the world of difference in how we look at it. The optimism factor is so vital, it not only impacts our relationship with God, but it is the major reason that I'm doing this brief series, it's going to be about four weeks, because it impacts every part of our life. It'll impact your career and your relationships with your co-workers. It'll impact you as a parent and the way that you raise your kids. If you're married, it'll impact the relationship with your spouse. If you're single, it'll impact your dating relationships. It'll impact your, your relationships with your neighbors. Whether you're an optimist or pessimist, whether you look at life where the glass is half empty or if it's half full, everywhere you look, it's going to have a huge impact on your life. Today, I want to tell you why I am an optimist, and it's going to find its foundation in a couple of short parables that Jesus taught and one promise that he gave. Now, it's based all on all of Scripture, to be truthful, but I had to pick out what we we're going to focus on today, and there's two relatively unknown relatively overlooked parables that we're going to look at, brief parables, and then a passage that I'm sure you're probably familiar with, and there's a promise in it that Jesus gives that should make an optimist out of everybody who is a Christ follower. But before we do that, I want to lay down a little bit of background about this whole idea of being pessimistic versus optimistic. And I want to start with what I'm calling the ultimate, the ultimate oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is, something like jumbo shrimp or you know, we always joked in military intelligence, and it's two words that really don't fit together. And I believe that the ultimate oxymoron is a Christian pessimist, a Christian pessimist. There's nothing that's more like, what? I'm, I'm pessimistic in life, but I'm a child of God. I mean, stop and think of what it means to be a Christian. You're a child of God. Your sins are forgiven. I'm going to live forever. God's on my side. He's promised that eventually everything's going to work out. I've, I've read the back of the book, but yet I'm, I'm bummed out. I'm bummed out. And it's like something is wrong with that picture. But the truth of the matter is, if we could be a fly on the wall and step outside of our faith and, and outside of our, our churches and our, and our chapels and take a look at Christianity as a whole, especially American Christianity, I think we'd see that a lot of Christians tend to be pessimistic. And I've spent the bulk of my ministry ministering in cultures in the military and, and such and amongst unchurched people. So I'm pretty well in tune with how people outside the church looks at the church. And folks, those of us that are Christ followers, we don't have a very good reputation. A lot of Christians look around and they, they feel like the world is going to hell in a handbasket at the speed of light. We see that things are happening in our culture and in our world, politically and spiritually, and we wring our hands with a sense of, boy, things are really getting bad. But as we'll see here, when things are all said and done, things may be getting bad at certain times and, and in certain places, but to be a Christian and to be a pessimist really doesn't fit together. 
God has called us to be optimistic, to be optimists. And I hope that after you see why I'm an optimist, that you'll walk away from here today with that same sense. But let me take a few moments and kind of describe why pessimism is just around the corner for many of us and why it's grasped onto so frankly by so many Christians. There's two things that we experience and have around us that you need to be aware of because if you let these creep into your life, I guarantee you, you will be a Christian pessimist. The first thing you need to be aware of is what, what could be called the crisis du jour. Of course, du jour means, means of the day. So the crisis du jour means the crisis of the day. And the crisis of the day is this. You look around the Christian circles and there's always something about to happen or there's something happening. And if we don't immediately stop it, it's going to be the end of Christianity. It's going to be the end of civilization. You know, I, I can't think, but help but think of you know, the chicken little syndrome there. It's going to be the end of Christianity and, and Christian civilization as we know it. And by the way, this is not limited to Christian organizations. Others use it as well. It's a wonderful fundraising tool for organizations that battle with these things. They, you see, they get more money the worse things seem to be. And so their letters are always crisis du jour oriented. And their radio shows and their direct mailings will often be that way because if they can create a sense of panic in you, guess what you're going to do? You're going to pick out that checkbook or you're going you're to pull out that credit card. They're going to get more bucks. The idea is if X happens, it's the end of everything. But the truth of the matter is, X continues to happen, so does Y and Z, and it hasn't happened. Civilization has not ended. Christianity has not ended. What actually happens is that things never turn out as we're so afraid they're going to turn out. Now, I'm not saying that bad things don't happen. Bad things do happen. We're going to talk a little bit more about that and how we should approach that in a little bit. I want to look at an example from relatively recent history. I believe that most all of us can remember this thing called communism and, and the Red Scare. It's still there, but it's lost much of its power and much of its force. But many of you remember when the big fear was that communism was going to take over the world. Well, I started out as an engineering major as an undergraduate at Ohio State. And I'll have to be honest, calculus kicked my butt, okay? And so I looked for another major. And I'd taken a survey course of Russian civilization, and I switched to international affairs concentrating in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And now I tell people my degrees in ancient history since the Soviet Union fell apart. But Lou's mother, Sarah, came to me one day when this was going on, and, and she, was, she was a simple country lady from down southern Ohio, and she goes, Lad, are you red? I mean, why else would I be studying Russian unless, you know, I was looking into communism. It didn't matter that I was a midshipman in the naval ROTC unit there. Well, communism actually took over much of Europe, Europe was divided into free Europe, also known as what? Western Europe. And there was other countries that were behind the what? The Iron Curtain, Eastern, Eastern Europe. And if you were a Christian in Eastern Europe, you were most likely persecuted. You were not allowed to rise politically. And it was a dark time for Christianity and pessimism reigned. Well, if we fast forward to today and we took a look at what's happened, if you were to gauge the spiritual hunger and what God is doing today in Western Europe versus Eastern Europe, where do you think you'd find God doing the biggest work? In Eastern Europe. In Eastern Europe, big time. So when we were wringing our hands and going, oh no, and, and, and living in, in pessimism, God was at work. God was heavily at work. And the same thing is true in other places right now, places like China or places like, like Iran. And, and the fact of the matter is, if you study Christian history, 
you'll see that any time the church is persecuted, what happens? It grows. It grows. The church always grows in the face of persecution. So the first thing you have to be very careful of, especially if you're, if you're reading Christian literature, Christian magazines, etc., listen to Christian radio if you're on the mailing list of, of some of those organizations and, and the political organizations, is don't be seduced by the crisis du jour. Before you get too worked up, look back at the crisis du jour from six months ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, and so on. The second thing that you and I need to be aware of is 2200 hindsight. It's there on your life notes, and I did make a mistake. I'm talking 2200 hindsight, not 2020 hindsight. Do you know what 2200 sight is? It's where you're considered legally blind. If you have 2200, if if, if you see at 20 feet what other people can see at 200 feet away, that it, it means that you're legally blind. Now, we have a habit of saying that hindsight is what? 2020, right? And we use this phrase in one sense. In one sense, hindsight can be 2020. When I look back at, at decisions I've made, and it's usually pretty easy you know, to see, okay, I should have made this decision here or this decision there. But the reality is that it's usually 2200. It's usually legally blind when it comes to looking at what the past was really like. You see, we have a tendency to glorify the past. We have a tendency not to remember how bad the past was in certain ways. You know, we talk about the good old days. And when you had a crisis du jour and a glorification of the past, you have a recipe for pessimism and discouragement. Let's consider an example here. You know, every generation is given a name or, or a title, for example, Gen X or, or Gen Y and, and now the millennials. And then I forget what the one is after them. But most of us here today, we would fall into what's called the baby boomers, people born between 46 and 64. That's me. How many, how many baby boomers got here? Born between 46 and 64. And then the silent generation, born between 1948 and 1945. How many silent generation? You're going to remain silent and keep your arms down? Anybody born between 28 and 45 and want to admit it? Okay, there you go. Know if I phrased it another way, you'd get it. Now, those that were born 1901 to 27, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but we honor you because you're in your 90s then, and we do have some people in their 90s. Anybody here born between 1901 and 1927? I think most of them actually are staying home during COVID right now. We have them in the park, and some of them just aren't, aren't attending right now. But those between 1901 and 1927 are called the greatest generation or the GI generation. And Tom Brokaw wrote a book years ago entitled The Greatest Generation. It's basically a, a book praising the generation that went through the Depression, they went off and fought World War II and, and won it, and, and they offered three decades of marvelous statesmen and world changers to us. It's great because they ended up being the greatest generation, but if we see with 2200 what life was like back then, it's good, we're going to say, oh yeah, the good old days. Well, I want you to listen to some quotes from the time period, from that time period in the 30s, about this generation when they were in their teens. They were not known as the greatest generation back then. They were being called in sociology and political science, the lost generation. This comes from Harper's Monthly, an article in 1936 said this, a generation numbering in the millions has gone so far in decay that it acts without thought of social responsibility. <laughs> Sound familiar? High school kids are out for what they can get. The lost generation is even now riding before our eyes. Hmm. The Columbia University president said this back then. Day by day, the newspapers report one grave crime after another, one moral delinquency after another, and one dereliction of duty after another. 
I bet, I bet they didn't even make their beds. Or how about this one? Youth gone loco. Villain is marijuana. Organized gangs are distributing drugs in the schools. The greatest generation? The lost generation? Or maybe something in between? And maybe it calls into question a little bit of our concern, which I hear voiced frequently, because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but as I get older, the freshmen always seem to get smaller. You ever notice that? And, and you know, the walk that I had to school, it always seems to get longer the older I get. When I fall for the crisis du jour and when I let 2200 hindsight glorify a past, I'm set up where the enemy wants me. Instead of walking in faith and optimism, I walk in pessimism and discouragement. I want you to look at this verse in your life notes there. It's a powerful warning, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Now, some of you probably need to go back and circle that in your Bible. Put it up on your mirror. Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. That's how we get pessimistic, because we always look back with 2200 hindsight. What I want to do now is to show you some key passages that cause me to be an optimist and then describe exactly what that means. And so let's look at two parables and a promise. These cause me at the core of my being to choose to see the water in the glass as half full, not the air in the glass, and see it as half empty. The first one's found in Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 26. Jesus is doing some teaching here about the kingdom of God. And as I said, these, this parable and the little one that follows it are, are, are kind of overlooked sometimes. So it says in verse 26, He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, what's the subject? What is he talking about? The kingdom of God. It's a parable. He's talking about the harvest, but he's using the harvest to point to the kingdom of God. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You've got a farmer, and this guy scatters some seed. Now, he could be a good farmer and do all the stuff to help it grow, you know, get up early, fertilize it, water and stuff. Or he could be a lazy farmer. And so you're saying, well, that's an oxymoron. Well, farmers aren't lazy, okay? sleeping in and, and not tending the seed. Jesus says something's going to come up anyway, whether he sleeps or whether it gets up all by itself, it continues to grow. Now catch this. Jesus says this is what the kingdom of God is like. No matter what we do, whether we're doing our part or not doing our part, now I'm not saying that we don't have a responsibility, but that's another message for another time. What it's saying is whether you look around and, and you feel like every Christian you know is asleep at the switch or they're spiritually, spiritually lazy or they fill in the blank with whatever they won't do, don't get too discouraged because the kingdom will grow in reality. It's like the scattered seed that I'm talking about in the parables, what Jesus is saying. Just because it's planted, it will grow up. So then he says, he goes on in verse 30, here's another thing you need to know. It's the second parable. Again, he said, in case you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to give you another little story here to tell you what the kingdom of God is about, he's saying. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Jesus says, never forget 
That's how the kingdom of God is. Despite the smallest, most insignificant start, when you're not even sure you can see it, it grows up big. He's telling us what the kingdom of God is like. He's telling Peter and the boys and the, and the disciples there, the people that are following, and he speaks to us today. And we need to keep this in mind, especially when we're talking about how to look at things in an optimistic way. So we've seen these two parables. Now let's look at the promise. It's found in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to begin at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Jesus is traveling around with his band of disciples, as he was prone to do, and he comes to this region called Caesarea Philippi. And he asked, his, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man? That was one of his designations that he used for himself oftentimes. Who do people say that I am? What's the rumor mill? What are the people saying in the pools? And Jesus was getting quite a crowd. And you can imagine how the word had passed around and people were trying to figure out this, about this guy who, who turned uh, water into wine and, and who walked on water and the blind were able to see. And last week we saw that Larry the leper was, was healed. All kinds of miracles were happening and people were hearing about this. And they said, well, some say you're, you're John the Baptist. And you see, John the Baptist had been killed at the beginning part of Jesus' ministry when Herod had his head cut off. And so he was dead. But some people thought that John the Baptist had come back. Others said, no, 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 it's Elijah. Remember, there's a prophecy. He's, he's supposed to come back. It's got to be Elijah. And then others say, well, no, it's Jeremiah. He never finished his work. And, and others argued for other prophets. And everybody had their own idea about who Jesus was. So Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And there's this one guy amongst the disciples there who was normally real quiet and shy and sitting in the background. He was hesitant to answer. And Peter speaks up, so, well, 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 you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I know the answer to that one. Well, Christ means Messiah in the Greek language. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's, it's a title. And so Peter's basically saying, you're the promised Messiah. And Jesus perks up and he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Man hasn't revealed this to you. I'm going to give you a gold star anyway, though. My father in heaven has, has revealed it to you. And I tell you that you are, and he gives him a new name. He goes from being Simon to being Peter, which means little rock. And then he says, upon this rock, so he uses Peter, the little rock, and then he says, upon this rock, and that's a different word that's used there. It's a word that means bedrock, a foundation for something. He says, upon this bedrock, this big rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. What a promise. What a promise. This should inform everything we see, everything we read, everything we believe. This promise of God, promise of Jesus Christ, that the gates of hell will not overcome his church. So these are the two parables in the promise. Now, I want us to step back for a minute, and I want to draw your attention to three points that I've got in your life notes concerning these parables and the promise and what they mean, what they should mean for us. The first one is this. God's kingdom will grow on its own. That's a parable of the seed that's scattered. 
Well, Walt, does this mean we don't need to send missionaries? No, it doesn't. Jesus said for us to go and be missionaries. But what he's saying is, you know, it's ultimately dependent upon God. It's not dependent upon Walt. Walt has a responsibility, but it's ultimately dependent upon God. So whether we wake or sleep, do our part or not, it just keeps on growing. And so it tells me this, that we worry too much sometimes. It matters whether we sleep or whether we do our part, but we overworry because we have this assumption that if we don't do our part, you know, somehow God's going to lose the, lose the battle. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't worry. It's going to grow. Trust me. The second parable, the mustard seed that grows into this big bush or tree, Jesus teaches, don't judge the end by the beginning. Don't judge the end by the beginning. If you and I were told to, to big a big a big hedge over here and we were all we were given these little stinky seeds that we could barely see, we'd we'd probably freak out. We'd say, wait a minute, I need some big seeds. I need some something to plant something big. I gotta grow a big hedge. But Jesus says, No, don't worry about it. It doesn't look like much, but given enough time, given enough time, you'll be blown away by what happens. A mustard seed in God's economy provides large plants. So never judge the end by the beginning. And just as the kingdom will grow on its own tells me that we worry too much, this principle tells me that oftentimes we judge too quickly. It's why we're prone to, to responding in a negative way for the crisis du jour. We jump to conclusions way too quickly. And here's what the promise teaches us. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And the big thing that that reminds us that we need to keep in mind every single day, especially whenever we're, we're facing the crisis of your, especially when we're looking, we're prone to look with 2200 hindsight. We need to remember that Satan is the one under attack. Say it with me. Satan is the one under attack. It's not us. He's the one under attack. All too often, we Christians, we act as if we're the ones under attack. We're on the defensive, and so we kind of hunker down in our little Christian ghettos, and we hold on to one another, thinking that the enemy may knock us around, but, but he can't overcome us. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. You need to get the right picture in your mind. This is, is not a picture that he's painting of us hunkered down. This is a picture of us on the advance, of us on the offensive. And this is a picture of Satan not being able to hold back against the offensive that the church has mounted on him. When he says the gates of hell won't prevail against it, it wasn't a picture of Satan picking up a gate and going around and bashing, bashing you know, church people on over the head. That's not what it is. It's more a picture of Satan hunkered down behind his gates, saying, hey, let's put another board in there, put another board there, let's reinforce it. And no matter what he does, no matter what he does, he cannot hold back the kingdom of God. What a different picture than the one that we so often respond to. God doesn't promise, well, just hang in there and, and I'll send reinforcements to, 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 to guard your gates and, and make it. No, he's promised that we're going to kick Satan's tail. And there's nothing that he can do to hold it back. And if you put these three things together, I get a bit, no, I don't get a bit optimistic. I get very optimistic and I hope you do as well. And what I want to do with the rest of our time is tease this out a little bit so that we know what to do with it. Because it's one thing to say that we should be optimistic because of these promises. But I want to get real practical with this and talk about what optimism really looks like and, and how it works and it works its way out in our lives. A lot of people hear the word optimism and a picture comes to mind that has nothing to do with biblical optimism. It's more like our view of the ostrich. 
So let me first of all talk about what are what are ostrich known to do when they're afraid? They what? They stick their heads in the sand. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you knew that? How many of you knew that? Okay. Well, I'm sorry to break it to you, but you're all wrong. You're all wrong. It's an old myth. It's a wives' tale. Ostriches do not stick their head in the sand. Now, what they do is they, they get down and they put their head down on the sand so they kind of blend in, try to blend in in the, in, in the, in the environments where they live where, and try to blend in so the predators can't get them, but they don't put their head actually in, in the hole in the, in the sand. And I needed to tell you that because otherwise some of you people that watched Marlon Perkins on Animal Kingdom, how many remember Marlon Perkins on Animal Kingdom, okay? Or today it's Animal Planet. You'd be telling me, Walt, they don't know. No, I know they don't do that. But let's think about it for illustrative purposes. When we think of an ostrich, this word picture that comes to our mind is the idea of avoiding reality, sticking the head in the sand, right? So let's talk about the difference between an optimist and the one who avoids reality, like the mythological ostrich sticking his head in the sand, the one that lives in denial. We've all been around these kind of people, people that pretend that bad things are good or really good. Ever been around that kind of person? Ever, or have you ever been that person that tries to do the mental gymnastics in your own mind so that it'll, it'll fit this, this narrative that you had? Okay, this is good. This is really good. Yeah, maybe they'll hit the other side of my car, and then my car will be, will be balanced. God's not calling us to call bad things good. In a fallen world, bad stuff happens. And if this bad stuff was good, it would be happening in heaven throughout all eternity. And that's not going to happen because that is bad. It's painful enough when you're trying to call a bad thing good. There's nothing more painful, though, when your friends are calling a bad thing good. Like the well-meaning person who told a young couple upon the loss of their child, well, God must have needed another angel. And I just want to say, no, no, no. I know the person's well-meaning, but their theology is totally screwed up because babies don't become angels. But then, too, to, to, to say, oh, God, tuck your kid because he needed another angel. And people say these kind of things all the time. They, they mean well, but it isn't, it isn't good theology. It isn't, a good, it isn't therapeutic. It isn't helping for, for the person. The Bible is full of statements about evil and bad and, and tears are shed and, and, and concerns that are expressed. And being an optimist doesn't mean that you pretend that bad things are good. In fact, listen to these words in Isaiah 520. They're on your notes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And along with pretending that bad isn't bad, there's a kind of corollary that, that you can see oftentimes in Christian communities called happy talk. Have you ever been around someone who thinks being optimistic just and, and, being, and having faith is just having happy talk. You know, they run around with a little plastic smile on their face, and they, everything is, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And you're sitting there wondering, what kind of Kool-Aid have they been drinking? You know, what's wrong with that person? Are they real? And I hate to tell you this, but the world, the people that are outside the church see this, and they can spot it. And they say, I don't want that. I can tell that's fake. I can tell that's not real. Some people have been told this and they, they buy into it and they pick it up on their own and, and they say, well, if I'm going to see the glass as, as half full and I'm going to be a person of faith, all I have to do is make positive statements and, and positive confessions and all, kind of, all kinds of stuff like that. And they end up calling evil good and end up looking really weird to the world. And, and it's okay if you're looking weird for Jesus, if Jesus told you to look weird, but if you're looking weird because you've got the wrong understanding here, it's not good. They don't make God look good. An optimist is very different. A biblical optimist, instead of living in denial, lives in 
and by faith. So bad is still bad, but they have faith that God knows what's going on. They can shed tears and they can be sorrowful and and hurting and not put on a fake smile and and try to explain things away with, with little pithy quotes. They can say, I'm trusting God anyway, even in the midst of all this bad stuff. Now, let me help you remember that this word faith, what it means, because one of the one of the, uh, it's one of those words in our culture that doesn't have a, a, a really strong meaning anymore like it should or like it used to. It's kind of like the word love. You know, I can say I love my wife. I love Buckeye football and I love maple walnut ice cream. But are those all three the same on the scale for me? No, no, they're not. Well, the Greek word for faith is pistis, and it means trust. Having faith in, in God does not mean a strong imagination of everything working out okay. It, it doesn't mean just being happy. It means a deep-seated trust, and, and, and faith is a verb in the, in the Greek. Some of you have heard me say, if I ever write a book, I want that to be the, the, the title of the book. Faith is a verb. Faith is something you do. And, and many of you heard me talk about faithing Jesus because that's the way it's used in the Greek. The Greek form, pisteo, is you faith something. You have an object in your face. You trust, you trust something. And so it means that we have this deep-seated deep trust that God can be trusted. Look at your life notes at Hebrews 11, chapter 6, and we'll see what an optimist does. What gives them optimism is their faith, and it's simply their trust that God will eventually fix things. God will eventually overwhelm evil with good, not making the evil into good, but overwhelming it with good. It's kind of like childbirth, okay? Now, anytime a guy start, mentions childbirth, he, he's, he's standing on, 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 on ground where he's got to be careful how he talks about it, okay? So I'm told that natural childbirth is not a lot of fun. How many of you would agree with me? Okay, guys, don't raise your hands. Okay, the ladies raise, raise their hands. I was in the room when two of our children were born. When the first was born, I was on the other side of the world and, and couldn't be there. But when the second and third one were born, I was there, and it didn't look like a lot of fun. I remember thinking, I'm glad I'm a man. And with that whole painful experience, some of you signed up for it more than once. Why? Because you knew the joy on the other end. So the joy on the other end doesn't mean that the pain didn't hurt. Of course not. The pain hurt, but you knew what was coming at the end, and as great as the pain is, the joy is so much better until they become teenagers. Just kidding. Women in labor are trusting, they are trusting the outcome on the other end. And that's kind of how it is with faith in life when we walk in faith. Here's what God says about faith, Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is what? Impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It's pretty important here. Two things. First, the one is that we must believe that he exists. Then the second one is that he rewards those who persistently, who diligently, who earnestly seek him. See, the core of faith is believing that no matter what's going on around me, God will reward me if I hang tough. That's faith. It's not unlike the labor pains. It's trusting that on the other side of that, there's going to be a child to hold close. That's what faith is all about. Revelation 21 tells us that someday there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And at that point, every tear will be wiped away and there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. There'll be none of the stuff that brings us pain. And from then on, we'll go into eternity. And that ought to make us pretty optimistic, even if I feel like right now, 
I'm in the, in the middle of the longest labor in history. In the Old Testament, there's a little book. It's only, it's only three chapters long called Habakkuk. Habakkuk is, is one of the greatest examples of optimism in faith while realistically seeing the pain, the sorrow, and the evil all around. Habakkuk was a man of God. He was a prophet. And as he looked around, here's what he observed. He saw God's people, the Israelites, and you could read that as Christians would be today, were not doing what God had told them to do. But as he looked even further, he saw something even worse. There was this nation, they were called the Assyrians, and they were incredibly evil, they were incredibly wicked, and they were having great success, and they were conquering country after country after country, city after city, and it was inevitable that they were going to make their march on Jerusalem. Now, these guys were really bad people. They followed a demon god. They did all kinds of horrible things. You can read about their cruelty. Um, You talk about war crimes. These people wrote the book on war crimes. And so Habakkuk is saying, God, what's going on here? Like, we're really messing up, but they're a hundred times worse than we are, and they're having success. Help me understand this, God, is what Habakkuk says. And God's answer was this. Listen, don't worry about it. If I want to use them temporarily to teach you folks a lesson, I will do that. But they will get theirs and you will be restored because you are my kingdom. You are my children. Well, Habakkuk hears that and and he writes these words. And this comes from Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. I want you to see the realism and the optimism put together here. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So Habakkuk saying, I'm scared to death. I'm ready to cry. I feel sick. I can hardly think. My legs are shaken. I'm petrified. But I'm going to wait patiently. I'm going to hold on because I know the Lord will judge those who are bringing such pain on us eventually. And then he continues in verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Now, I want to tell you, folks, in an agrarian society, this is not good stuff. You think COVID's bad? This stuff happening in an agrarian society is not good. He says in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. See, this is optimism at its core. It's realistic enough to see all this is going on, to hate it, to be scared to death, to weep about it, to have your your, your legs shaking, to feel decay in your bones, you can't get up out of bed, but to hold on to those few drops of water that are left in the cup. And so he says, I'm not going to rejoice in this. I hate this. I hate what's going on. I hate every moment of it, but I am going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. There may be no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, the olive trees, all this stuff. May No, I'm still going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now, I just want to take a minute here and I want to mention something that we need to we need to look at very. We're only going to do it very briefly. And that is depression. You may be saying, well, what about depression? We all know people struggle with it at different times. Some people for intensely long periods of time. We don't have time to go into all the types and causes of depression, but but here's my short answer, okay? There are various causes of depression. Sometimes it's chemical. Some people have a chemical imbalance in their brain. 
And God has given mankind drugs and other things that, that, that might help. And, and, and if, that's, if that's what people need, they need to see a medical doctor. Now, I will say that sometimes I think doctors possibly overprescribe psychotropic drugs and stuff like that. So you need to do so prayerfully and in concert with your, uh, your pastor or a, find a Christian doctor. So sometimes it's chemical. Sometimes depression is situational. A really bad thing happens and you become mildly depressed or significantly depressed afterwards. And sometimes it helps to talk to, to a pastor, a chaplain, a Christian counselor uh, in order to help you get through it, help you reframe things and look at things. Sometimes it's what we call stinking thinking, stinking thinking. We look at situations and we extrapolate them incorrectly. A lot of our family of origin issues sometimes happen uh, because of stinking thinking, that the scripts that we learn as children that end up affecting us for the rest of our, rest of our lives. We look at these uh, situations and we aren't thinking about them in a proper way. And so we, we forget who God is and what God will do. And again, it may help to talk to somebody, someone that can help you get God's perspective on what happened as you were growing up or what happened in the situation that you're dealing with. There's a variety of reasons, but you can be depressed and still be optimistic. Because optimism is not happy thinking. Optimism is a deep-seated faith and trust in God. Read Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah had reason to be depressed. Israel was being taken captive in Babylon. He was taken too. But yet, he still trusted in God throughout all of that. That's why they call him the weeping prophet. So even when the world seems dark and things seem dark, we can find a reason to be optimistic. God calls us not to happy talk and, and syrupy optimism, but to a deep-seated confidence that he is in control. And a few hundred years from now, we'll go, oh, it was just labor pains. Before we finish, I want to give you quickly some practical advice here. The first is there, the first one, don't be afraid to call bad things bad. There's no reason to fear. If a bad thing happens, call it bad. Call it a bad thing. If you're frightened about something on the horizon, say you're frightened and admit it. Too many Christians are, are afraid to go to somebody and say, hey, I'm having problems dealing with this. It is what it is. Just call it that. A small group is a great place to be able to share your feelings, share what's going on. I'm not talking about a, a Bible study with 20 or 30 people in it. That's not what a small group is. If it's more than 12 people, it's not a small group, okay? But in a small group, you can share your heart. And we've, we've, had, we've had them a couple times over the last few years here. It's, and there's some people sitting out there now that, that I've been able to share life with, you've been able to share life with me as we've gone through things. Too many Christians are afraid to admit that they're having problems. It doesn't mean that you don't have faith. It doesn't mean that you're a pessimist. It just means that you're, you're telling exactly how you feel it, how you see it. But at the same time, second, number two, be careful not to catastrophize. Be careful not to catastrophize. Catastrophizing is when you take what is and you straight line it all the way out into eternity. You go to the most utter extreme. The truth is, no matter how big your problem is, I can guarantee you, it's not going to last more than 70 or 80 years. If you're a believer in Jesus, Teresa Grunel always says the first hundred is the hardest. I've had her say that a few, a few times. I've listed 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 20 in your life notes. It's too long to put in there, but I encourage you to read it this afternoon. It's a classic passage where the Apostle Paul is describing all the bad things that are happening in his ministry. People have betrayed him, stuff like that. But he never catastrophizes as he keeps coming back to God will fix it. God will fix it. God will fix it. Even if not while I'm still alive, 
God will fix it. And finally, never forget life's biggest problem. You see, life's biggest problem is not COVID. It's not any other disease. It's not a heartache in your family. It's not your career. It's not your spouse. Don't look at them. It's not something that you've wished for that, that's been unfulfilled. Your biggest problem is my biggest problem. You and I, we've rebelled against the King Most High. We've rebelled against God. We've all violated God's law in, in some areas. And you know what the result is? It's over. Except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. Jesus deals with that sin problem when we faith him, when we embrace him as our Savior, when we trust him with our life. And not just the life in the hereafter, but the life day to day, so that we live our lives day to day in a way that honors him, in a way that follows his teachings. And when I understand how big that problem, the sin problem is, everything else seems a lot smaller. There's a great passage in, in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends 72 disciples out and they do some incredible ministry. And these guys, they come back, they're stoked, they're happy, they're delighted. They're telling Jesus, you wouldn't believe this. And they're all talking at once and, and they're talking to Jesus about the people that have been healed and the, the things that were done and, and the demons that were, that were cast out. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, guys. Wait a minute. And he tells them, don't rejoice. Don't rejoice that even the demons, you know, answer. What you need to rejoice in is that your name is written in the book of life. You need to rejoice in your salvation. That is what ultimately matters. So I hope that you can see why I'm an optimist. And I, and I hope that I've helped you today to see a little bit more the water in your glass, not the emptiness. Amen.